All right, a very quick review here to get us up to speed where we're at in our study of sharing Christ in the end times. Uh, we have talked about the necessity of prayer is the first big point. Our second big point was how to confront people with their sin in a subjective world where it's everyone does what's right in their own eyes. Uh, we've handled that for several weeks, and now for several weeks we've been in the category of confronting people with truth in a world that doesn't have absolute truth. And we've looked already at the concept of reasoning with people and the place that that holds, that we have a reasonable faith, that what we are offering makes sense, that what Christ is offering makes sense, it's a necessity is there, um, that there is... Uh, if people were trained to think well and to have good logic, they would understand. And, and, and often the way, by the way, I've never really said this, but one of the ways you can see that someone is thinking like that is when they say, well, if I was a betting man, I would bet for what the Bible teaches. And I've heard people tell us that. That doesn't mean they're followers of Jesus Christ. In fact, most of them weren't. Um, but they'll say, well, if I were to take it seriously and I was really going to commit to one faith, which I am not, um, it would be Christianity. And that makes good logic um, based upon the teaching of various other religions. And we could talk about that, but it's really beyond the scope of what I want to deal with tonight. So we talked about the place of reasoning, that we have a reasonable faith. We don't have anything to be embarrassed about in this regard. Um, because the concept of sacrifice, the concept of, of, of judgment, of fairness, of, are all there. That they are um, within our faith, they are not absurdities, and, and therefore they are reasonable. We can reason with people. And most of the time, uh, that frustrates them. And so we invite people to examine our teaching and we invite even those within our teaching, feel free to educate yourself on what Mormons teach and Jehovah's Witnesses teach. Feel free, if you're well grounded in the truth, um, those things aren't a threat because you will expose them. The Bible says they'll be exposed by the truth. And so they're usually only a threat to those that are weak in their training or weak in their thinking and more emotive than thoughtful or reasonable. So then we also took time to look at the, not only reasoning, but the process of what's called apologetics, defending the faith, which is uh, usually trying to take external things to defend the principles of God's word, not only from the concept of rationality and reasoning, but also from other fields of men's study. Uh, we looked at Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, remember that? And we looked at that, and where he's quoting their prophets, their poets, I'm sorry, not prophets, they're poets, and he's taking from other literature, from other sources, whether it be from archaeology, whether, where, uh, um, from other sciences, so-called, and we're bringing those to bear and saying, and demonstrating the, the, the absoluteness of God's claims, of the claims of Scripture, specifically to Jesus Christ, the resurrection, we talked about some works that are out there in the apologetic realm. So we have apologetics being done in the area of creation and uh, young earth. We have apologetics being done in terms of defending the historicity of Jesus Christ and of scriptural truths and principles of even just places and people, just identifying them. 
And so the place of apologetics is an important one. It's valuable to deal in dealing with somebody who just won't accept this. And their approach to the truths of Scripture is, well, that's your truth and not the truth. Um, it's just a book of fables, things like that, which we're going to talk a lot about tonight. And so the area of apologetics is usually bringing outside sources to defend the principles of God's Word. We don't always use Scripture in the area of apologetics. Even though we have that as a foundation in our engagement with the world through apologetics is generally from outside source sources that they um, would recognize and acknowledge. And so uh, apologetics is the defense of, our, of the, um, not only the historicity, but the reasonableness of the gospel. And then last week we talked about our testimony and what place that has in us introducing truth. That if we are not living truth before them, if we do not have that, that it is very difficult then to come to them and say there is an absolute truth. Um, now there is a danger there. We talked about that, that well, I have a history of not obeying the truth, but God got a hold of me. Paul, again, the testimony between Felix and Festus in his, in his trials, where he talks about this, and he says, you know, this is who I was, and now this is what the truth has done to me. I fought against it. I fought the truth. I went and imprisoned people. I, I even, even got some of them to, to blaspheme God's name. I got some Christians to blaspheme God. All right. Well, what does that mean? That means that there are Christians there who did not and were not faithful in representing the truth to the lost. Because at that point, Saul was a lost individual. You blaspheme Christ... To a guy like Saul, you are being very selfish and not thinking about Saul. And so because Saul was very successful in his persecution of the church, Christ intervenes, and on the road to Damascus to persecute more people up there, he has this incredible encounter with Jesus Christ's resurrected person um, that blinds him and uh, asks him an important question. Why are you kicking against the goats? Why are you kicking against what essentially is the truth? You've heard good preaching, like Stephen's sermon, right? He was there because he's the one that consented to the stoning of Stephen. I mean, this guy is a serious enemy. And so is the testimony uh, uh, that he had before Felix and Festus that, listen, I was able to do this, but when I encountered the truth myself, it broke me. And I have been faithfully obedient to that ever since. That is the power of a testimony. That, listen, um, it's a true, it's true for me, it's true for you, it's true for an American, it's true for an African, it's true for, for an Asian, it's true for no matter what continent you're from, it is truth, and it needs to break you. Um, I remember when I was in the Philippines and I spoke um, there about that, any form of rebellion or any form of, of rebellion is really not of God, but of Satan. And uh, we were talking, of, and, and I preaching in that context, and I had a man come up to me after the sermon, what about the United States? And I was like, what about them? Well, they rebelled against the British. And I said, yeah, I, no, and it was wrong. And he was aghast that I thought that was wrong. I mean, that's the formation of your country. I was like, wasn't my decision. 
I would have opposed it. And there was a lot of people that did, including a large number of people that walked out of the meeting where they voted to send the thing to the king and, and that said, we can't vote for it, and so the best thing we can do is just remove ourselves. Those were largely the Quakers who were, who were against it. They said, we should not be rebelling against the king of England. And so the religious, the most religious group within that, our country's fathers said we should not be rebelling. This is a rebellion. And so, and he was, he was startled. He was like, really? That? I said, yeah, I said, I, I, that's truth. Everybody, every nation, every experience breaks on truth. You don't break truth by your experience. Okay, just because I enjoy this country and whatever and, 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 I'll, and doesn't mean that I will applaud everything that's done or make excuses or allowances for it when it breaks against truth. We can't let nationalism be our religion. It has to be God's word is true. And if rebellion is the, is the activity of Satan and submission is the activity of, that God requires of his people, then, then every act of rebellion is disobedient and we are in sin. And so whether that happens at a, at a, very, at a family setting or whether it happens in a church setting or a society or a national or even international setting, it's still true because truth is absolute. Our testimony should be to that. Paul's testimony was, I was broken against truth. Truth came and I had to obey it. I was not going to be disobedient to that heavenly vision. And so I'm going to stand here today and I'm willing to die for this. Not for something irrational, not for some a feeling, not for some... A misplaced concept. This is the truth. It has broken me. I've had to become obedient to it. And, and so it makes it would, and I've seen people get broken or, or, or break away from the truth. I've seen people blaspheme it. And I'm not going to be one. I'm ready to die today. And that should be our testimony that we are um, followers of the truth. When Jesus Christ says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, we are following him, um, and our testimony should be that. That doesn't mean I can do it perfectly, but I'll recognize when I have not obeyed the truth, I'll repent of that, I'll confess that, I'll correct that in my life. Because the truth should break us. We should not be trying to break the truth and disassemble it. And so your testimony, we talked about that last week. So that brings us to this week. And this week, we're finally getting to the truth in terms of uh, introducing the, the scriptures in this setting. Now, how are we going to do that? All right, hopefully we've developed, we, we've looked at four areas now. We say, well, this is God's word. It is true. Um, in all that it affirms, it, there is, it is inerrant. As without error. And I have to be careful about that a little bit. Um, and I remember there was one that there was one typo in the Bible. It says, oh, see, it's not inerrant. There was a typo. Well, that's, there was an S where there shouldn't have been an S. 
It, it, it was just one of those things. It should never have happened, but it does. It happens. And, um, but we are trying to confront people that there is a record of God's word that is true and that, again, is that which needs to be dealt with. So we're trying to introduce into this conversation now to establish an absolute truth now we've built up to this. We really have built up to it. Um, and this is the pinnacle. This is the object. This is what we're trying to get to. This is our goal, is to say God's word is true. And now I want to use God's word to introduce you to the principles because what men say, as much as I want to quote their poets, as much as I want to quote uh, their philosophers, it really only matters what God's word says. What does God say? So I want to get people into God's word. As, um, that is the goal, the aspiration, and that is where the power really resides. Are the other things unimportant? No, we, we should have that. We should be able to reason. We should be able to have apologetics. We should be able to have a testimony. But fundamentally, we're coming to the scriptures and saying, we're going to confront you with that. Now, it's kind of interesting how to do that. Um, historically, uh, in this culture, there has been a lot of respect for the scriptures. In 1962, in Dallas, Texas, the Bible was still a textbook in public schools. Okay? It was one of their textbooks. So every student got a copy of God's Word that went through Dallas Public School High School. All right? That's, that was the year I was born. All right? Yes, I'm going to be 60 this year, but not until after my wife is 60. That's the important thing. So six decades ago, that's the reality of where are the scriptures were valued in our society. Now, that was one of the last places that it was still textbook. It had already been abandoned a lot of other places by that point. Um, but uh, in the conservative South, it was still used in that fashion. When I was in high school, yes, that would have been like 16 years later, um, I still, in Virginia, could go in and take an elective course on the Bible in public schools. Okay? And so... Um, that would have been 70, let's see, that was, I went to so many different schools, I had to think about that, 78, I think. And so that was still available. Um, but we're coming into a time when there is two things going on. One is ignorance of the scripture, because they haven't been exposed to it at all. And the other one is antagonism towards the scripture, where, and you'll hear them, and I've said that phrase, it's just a book of fables, um, you know, it's, uh, it's something to control people. It's not true. Uh, and usually they are also somewhat, sometimes they're somewhat read in the scriptures, but a lot of times they're fairly ignorant of it as well. And then there is a third layer. I'm not that sure you're going to engage in that too much. And that is those who knew it extremely well, but reject its truth. And that would be a lot of times in your academia. Uh, when you go into Harvard Seminary, that should really, um, that's what Harvard started to train pastors. Did you know that? Harvard started as a training ground for pastors. And now you go to Harvard Seminary and the Bible isn't God's word. 
Jesus Christ isn't divine, I mean, you just go right through and, and you're going to have a hard time being taught anything that is <laughs> according to the Bible. Um, but in academia, through textual criticism, uh, through uh, false uh, doctrines and, and humanism, essentially, you're just, you're going to have people with profound knowledge of God's word, but reject it in its essence as truth. It is uh, subjective. I decide what I want to believe or not believe out of it. And whether I use Gnosticism or allegory or whatever I want to do, I can discount any portion of God's word. And you're, you might encounter one of those, uh, but I'm surely not within what I want to talk about tonight. And mostly what you're going to say is people are going to make offhand statements. And so we want to, though, get them into God's word. How do we get their attention to get them into God's word? To overcome those barriers uh, of either ignorance, and these are really two different categories, either ignorance of God's word or antagonism to God's word. How do we overcome that barrier? How do we initiate that? Having maybe done these other three steps, my testimony, uh, we should have set it up already. We should have set up God's word to be introduced. Um, for example, in your testimony, I'm, in a, I'm obedient to what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches me this. Every time you ha try to insert the concept of in your reasoning, in your apologetics, and that's what Answers in Genesis does extraordinarily well, right? We're here to defend the Genesis account of creation. I mean, it's in the name of their organization, Answers in Genesis. So you should be introducing scripture along the way, but now you're getting into the direct, you're going to have to, uh, you know, you're directly confronting people with, this is what the Bible says. And you're going to take them through the Romans road. You're going to take them through the John road. You could do it through John too. Did you know that? There aren't any tracks like that, but you can do it really well. Uh, you're going to have to take them through and just share the gospel with them. How are you going to do that? How are you going to overcome that? Ignorance is easier than antagonism to overcome. You just have to expose them to it. How do you overcome antagonism? Just a book of fables. Right. They've made the declaration. They should defend it. The easiest thing is to say, for example, I'm not telling you, I'm asking you. What part of this is a fables? Inevitably, where will they go? Do you know? If you ask them that question, what do they usually go to? Some will go to Genesis. Your scientific community will go to Genesis. Job? Why? Oh, God wouldn't have allowed that. Okay. All right, the resurrection. And remember, this is what Paul struggled with, right? He was fine in Athens until he said something. That God, Jesus, rose from the dead. They said, what are you talking about? You're going to have to prove that one. You know, that's outside of our experience. We think that's an impossible because we have a little saying. There are two things that are inevitable. You cannot avoid death and taxes, right? You can't avoid taxes. You'll go to jail, but you can avoid them. Did you know that? Just don't pay them. And you have to drive around illegally because that's a tax too and on, on, on. Anyway, um, well, now we're saying that someone conquered death, an inevitability that all of us see every day and less in our society because we're kind of 
disconnected from death a little bit. Um, and and uh, so the resurrection has always been a pressing point. And so they'll challenge, in the apologetic realm, they challenge it from the creation standing. Um, what other things will they point to? Your book of fables, be antagonistic towards. The flood narrative, okay? Uh, very similar uh, to the creation narrative, they will attack the flood narrative. You believe that, uh, uh, you'll have a lot of anti-Semitism being brought out in this category of antagonistic to the Bible because it supports Israel in terms of its historical claim to the, the Canaan. We shouldn't call it Canaan, right? Because that was before it, pre-Israel's Canaan. And uh, Palestine is post-Israel, so it's Israel. They're claimed to that land. All right, what else? Anything else they're going to pick on? Yes. All right, you believe Jesus is God. The deity of Christ they're going to deny. These are the fables they're talking about. If you ask them, what exactly do you think in here is a bunch of fables? And... They'll go through, and, and I've engaged people like this extensively on some occasions, uh, as long as they'll allow it and permit me, uh, and it's amazing the things they'll throw up. How many of you know about Gilgamesh? How many have ever heard of Gilgamesh? Okay, what is Gilgamesh? Okay, um, yeah. They will sit there and quote off, oh, the Bible is just another version of the Gilgamesh legend. And, and it just copied Gilgamesh. And I'll say, how many, how many copies of Gilgamesh are around? I mean, you're taking this as truth, Gilgamesh as truth. So I have lots of truth for the Bible to back it up. It has been examined and gone over by a fine-tooth comb by, for generations. We have millions, millions of ancient manuscripts. You thought it was just the Dead Sea Scrolls. We have millions of them. We have all this evidence. How much evidence is there to support that Gilgamesh was ever actually what it claimed to be? Do you know how many we're talking about? There isn't even one. Not one. But they'll quote it, oh, it's just, a re it's just rehashing the Gilgamesh legend. And I'm like, but you see, they've been trained in that, but now they're saying, well, and so I'll tell them, well, so you think Gilgamesh is true? You have a lot more faith than me because there's less evidence of that being true than of the Bible. So let's compare Gilgamesh to the Bible. And now, you're not going to have a lot of people that are going to do it, but I can't believe how many college students have been told this, apparently by their professors. Um, there's got to be professors at UNM that are telling their students the Gilgamesh thing. And so they throw this up at me. I can't tell you how many of them have done that. Um, uh, Ken. Ken uh, friends were always about that. <laughs> I was like, okay, here we go. And I'll show you, okay, prove it. 
You prove Gilgamesh, I'll prove my Bible, let's go. Let's compare them. How many manuscripts you got? Zero. I have millions. But you believe Gilgamesh, and you don't believe the Bible. And that's just a starting point. And I can go on, 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 on from there. Because I know Gilgamesh. I've read the scraps that they've put together. And, be, and so when you run into these antagonists, recognize they come from a very weak position. And the best thing to do is ask them about their position. Prove it. Because I'm willing to prove it to God's word, and I can do that, and I want to, but you're attacking God's word from a very weak position. If you're quoting place, things like Gilgamesh. Okay, yes? Correct, correct. And Marduk, and yeah. They're, correct, and, and that's the claim. And the, the problem is, is that it doesn't, they have no support. Right. Um, who is the great deceiver? How does he deceive? He twists the truth, and he's a copycat. He copies it. Okay. And when I confront you with that, I was like, well, um, you claim this direction, but there's a lot more evidence that claims the other direction, and their statement is, well, Moses was trained in the Egyptian gods and folklore and, and blah, 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 and he just picked up all this and wrote it. And so these are the accusations that, that if you engage people who are truly anti, not the ignorant, okay, they're much easier to deal with because I can just say, well, have you ever read God's word? And I'll give it to them, put them in their hand. Do you have a Bible you're willing to give away? You have a Bible you're willing to give away. Um, you know, if you read the testimony of how many people are ignorant and just came to a Bible. Um, my wife, when we first moved here, um, was at Presbyterian and had a fellow nurse. Uh, and she was uh, on fire. She had just gotten saved. She was a nasty lady, got saved, and... And she had a Bible that she took around at, at work. She took a Bible to work. You know what she did whenever she, she would find a passage that someone needed? She'd rip it out of her Bible and give it to them. And they'd go, oh, did you just rip that out of your Bible? Yes, it's that important. Now will you read it? Because I sacrificed it right out of my Bible. And it got everyone... And, and it worked. People, they are shaken. I mean, she just ripped this right out of the line. No, that's, that's a cartoon. Uh, ripped this right out of her Bible. So maybe you need to have a bunch of sacrificial Bibles set up. And it's okay to do that, by the way. They are God. They're tools to teach you about God. Okay? So I see some people reverencing their Bible like it's a deity. Um, it's a tool to teach us about God. It is God's truth. Um, and I had one missionary gal. She was just crying in front of the church. And I was like, oh, someone stole my Bible. And 
And I know what they use it for. They use it to roll their cigarettes because of the fine paper. I can't imagine my Bible being smoked. I was like, well, did it occur to you that maybe they'll read a little bit of it while they're rolling? Okay, we want to introduce so that ignorant, we just need to get them God's word. And, and how many testimonies are out there of people who are in a condition that they had no answers to questions and what they needed was God's word? So what does the Bible say about itself in terms of its effectiveness? It's a two-edged sword. That's the New Testament. It will not return empty, vain. It will not return void. Now that itself is a two-edged sword because it means that once you introduce the Bible to someone, now it cuts both ways. To not return void doesn't mean that as soon as you have a copy of God's word, you're going to get it and obey it, right? Um, but it does mean you're accountable for what you just read. And that means that if you reject it, you're going to have to answer to God for that. So that is a valid use of God's word. And God, I'm convinced, will use that. You had access um, the organization Gideons. You ever heard of Gideons? What was their whole point? Put a Bible in everybody's hand. It wasn't just hotel rooms. The Gideons, I don't know if they still do this. Do they, they go to the schools and they would hand out New Testaments. They couldn't be on the school property, but they would be, and everyone that wanted one would get a New Testament. Why? Because God's word has promised that it will not return empty or void. It will have an effect, whether that effect is to bring them to salvation or to bring them condemnation because they are rejecting the truth or ignore the truth. I mean, you could take that and throw it away just as easy, right? But at least you had that opportunity, and now you're going to have to answer to the judge of all the earth for that opportunity. We've got to give people that access to God's word, to its truth. And so... We have to confront with God's word. We do not withhold it from people um, and, and just say, would you like this Bible? Um, I was thrilled when we uh, went to Cuba because one of the things, I was like, well, we have Spanish Bibles and things like that. So we're going to Havana. And I went over here to Faith, uh, what is it? Faith Comes by Hearing. Uh, which is a ministry right here in Albuquerque. And their whole thing is get the Bible into people's ears in every language. So they, they're recording it, and I went under there, and I said, listen, I'm going to Haiti. Um, oh, I'm sorry, this is Cuba. I'm going to Cuba. I, I did it before I went to Haiti, too. I'm going to Cuba, and I just feel like I need to get some audio Bibles to take over there. And so, uh, I don't know, I... I I was the only one of the group of 10 pastors I had audio Bibles instead of written Bibles. Um, now, Cuba is 100% literate. Whatever you want to say about communism, they make everyone go to school or else. Okay? And so the Bible, the written record, but the amazing thing happened. I was there and I said, Pastor, I don't know. I just felt I needed to bring these audio Bibles. They're right here in my city. There's no reason for me not to bring them. They're in Spanish, and someone's reading them. And he, he just gobbled those up, and he, 
And uh, before that trip was over, he comes out and he says, we just had this blind guy get saved. He was listening. He's listened to the entire New Testament while you've been here. He listened to the whole New Testament. I wasn't there that long, folks. Um, and because once he heard it, he just wanted it, and he wanted it, and he wanted it, and he wanted it. And I don't know how much farther that went. So here's a blind man whose access to God's word was only audio. And so the introduction to God's word needs to be, God's word says, my word will not return empty. It will do something. Either it will convict them and they'll reject it and they'll be accountable for that, or they'll ignore it and they'll be accountable for that, or they will consider it and repent and be saved, and that is our goal and objective. But we're trying to really defend it as truth. God's word is truth. So how do we do that to the antagonist now? who has brought up all of these fables, brought up all these points. And again, we begin not by being defensive. If you don't accept this, you're going to hell for sure. Okay? Well, you're not going to impact them because to them there is no absolute truth. And so we begin this process of introducing biblical principles that might Shock them. I'd love to give the testimony to some, but they're not here tonight, and I didn't get permission. So I'm just going to, now you're thinking, oh, it's got to be the other them. So, um, but I had an opportunity to stand there, and here is an unbeliever who wants one thing, and dealing with a believer, and I'm like, well, actually, the unbeliever is right because it says this in the Bible. When an unbeliever says or does something that agrees with Scripture, I like to use Scripture. That person got saved, baptized, and is in our church. The one who was, was not biblical was the saved spouse. Had to be corrected, got corrected, and that was all it took. Oh, this Bible stuff works. It agrees with me. <laughs> we all like it to agree with us, right? So when we encounter somebody who's agreeing with the Bible, oh, you think lying is wrong? Yeah, God said so. You don't like being lied to. I don't. And we say, well, God says so. Not, well, yeah, I agree with you. I don't care if you agree with them. If God's word agrees with them, that's what they need to know. That there is really truth here. And there's, some, there's not just things that you don't care about. There are things that are part of your everyday life. These, these, this is a living book that is communicating things about normal things that even couples fight over. And this is the answer book. And we need to use it that way. Now, when they're antagonistic towards it, um, we usually want to use God's word to contradict them. And there will be a time for that. But what is, I think, a better starting point 
is when God's word agrees with them. Where does it agree with their life? And if we know somebody, then we can say, well, you know, God's word says that that's what it should be. You know, when I, when I see a parent discipline their child, I'll quote God's word to them and say, oh, you know, God says, affirms what you just did. Discipline a child, the way you should go. You know, don't withhold the rod. Um, not going to injure them, but you're going to correct them. That's the Bible. Are they Christians? I don't know, but I'm going to introduce the Bible as something that affirms something that they should be doing, that they are doing. We see, we often think we're going to start our use of the Bible in the contradictory way, and that's putting them on the defensive right away. And that's what we've already been talking about. They believe in no absolute truth. And so what is, remember, what is truth to them is their own beliefs. And I'm not trying to confirm that. I'm saying, let's go to the Bible. Now, I don't want that to be their pattern. I want them to go to the Bible and derive their beliefs from that. But I'm just in the process of introducing them to God's Word. And so how did the New Testament speakers do that? They would quote an Old Testament passage that linked to the argument of the ones that they're talking to. Did Jesus do this? Where? Okay, in, in terms of, yeah, he was tempted. Okay. He had to deal with that. Where we find an antagonist against truth being confronted by Jesus. We're finally getting to God's word in like six minutes left. Oh, yeah, and yeah, that's a good example, too. There's lots of examples. I'm trying to pick on one. Pharisees and Sadducees are well-educated in God's word. He uses them. I'm talking about someone that is kind of antagonistic to the Jewish scriptures that Jesus encountered. The Samaritan woman at the well. All right? I don't, I don't have a lot of time here, but you guys are, I know this group of people, you're all pretty familiar with the account of the Samaritan woman at the well. So a Samaritan woman comes to the well, and she's there to draw water. Jesus' disciples have gone into town to get some food. Jesus is sitting there by himself next to the well, and, he, and, and women don't come out at that time to get the water. All the nice women would have come out together at a different time, she comes out alone to draw water from the well. He looks at her. We're in Samaria, not in Judea. And he says, can you draw me some water? Draw me some water. Draw me a drink. And she looks around and says, are you talking to me? You're a Jew. I'm a Samaritan woman. And you want me to draw you water? That's a shocker. And it was. Okay. It broke down a few barriers right away. All right. We know that the time of day that she went to get that water meant that she was not a nice lady. She was a prostitute, more than likely, or very close to one. She was certainly living in sin. And so um, he encounters her, and, and, uh, and they have a little discussion, and what does Jesus try to say to her? You can have living water. 
And she wants to drive this to a, well, give me this water so I don't have to come here and draw anymore. And, and so she's totally off guard, not even thinking in his realm yet. Okay, she, he's still in the process of bringing her in to talk about spiritual things. And, but what is her antagonistic statement? You people say this, and my people say this. You Jews say that the only place we can worship is in Jerusalem. But us Samaritans know we're not welcome there, and we worship over here. How does Jesus encounter her? Does he throw out, get out the Pentateuch and start hammering her with her? That Jerusalem is the city of God? How does he do it? You know the story of the Samaritan woman. What does he do? It's not about here or there, is it? Those that worship him, God is, what does he begin? He begins teaching her about God. God is a spirit. And it's not here, it's not there. There's not like a little house that God lives in. He's a spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Do you hear that? He has just introduced a teaching about Jesus Christ to an antagonist who has this argument that they want to grind on. Most of the antagonists to God's word are not really against all of God's word. They just have an axe to grind against some of it that they have encountered negatively somewhere in their past. And she knew that this was an argument between Jews and Samaritans, and it was a good one to grind to have a discussion that wouldn't lead anywhere. And Jesus Christ just blows right by it. Says, uh, that's not important. God is a spirit. You worship him, yeah, I worship him in spirit and in truth. We've just raised the bar. And now she says, I perceive that you're a prophet. A rabbi, a teacher, you're, you're some, you must know your stuff because you didn't buy into the argument line. Now, apologetics is really engaging the argument. It's not that you can't engage the argument, but when we're introducing scripture, um, we need to not recognize, all right, you have this ax to grind. I'm not going to go there first. okay? Because frankly, each of you have parts of your lives that you haven't submitted to the Bible. And you're still grinding that axe against those passages, right? And you're mature believers. And we still have passages like, eh, I don't like it says that. And you make excuses for why you don't obey it when it clearly says you're supposed to do that and you don't. So it shouldn't bother you so much that they have such an axe to grind. They just have an experience somewhere in their past where they have come up against God's word in one area. It doesn't mean they've come up against God's word in every area and, or that they're even knowledgeable of every area. And that's why I said we're looking for something that just extracts it from the axe that they have to grind. The only way you're going to find out about that because you're not Jesus and don't know their history and don't know who they're living with and don't know their moral condition well, you do kind of, they're sinners. Um, you don't know what is in their history of the acts they're grinding against God's word. The only way you're going to find that out is by asking a lot of questions and getting to know them better. But while you're doing that, um, to introduce the principles of God's word. Is the principle, God is a spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth, a biblical principle prior to the New Testament? 
Or is God only to be worshipped in Jerusalem? Okay, there's extensive information in the, in the New Testament, that, or in the Old Testament, I'm sorry, um, that blows her arg- the, the whole conflict away. All right, did Jacob's ladder happen in Jerusalem? No. Did Naaman worship God in Jerusalem? Never. What about Joseph? He never got to Jerusalem, did he? He was in Egypt worshiping God. All right, so God isn't in one place. He's the God of all the heavens and the earth. And so Jesus Christ just blows right by that grinding axe that she wants to do to take her into the truths of Scripture. And that's what I'm trying to instruct us. All right, they believe in non-absolute truth, and so it's truth to you. So I want to start with what's truth you think is truth to you, just like we did with sin. Where is your moral place? We're going to start with their morality and lead them to the Bible's morality. What is your truth? And let's find it in God's word if it really is true. And not visit the places. Let's not start with the argument. They want to start with the argument because it's their axe. And they want it to grind. We're trying to get around that or past that and above that and say, well, that's not really in the Bible. You can't believe how many times people have had an axe to grind against the Bible of something that's not even in the Bible. I'm like, um, the Bible doesn't say that. Where do you think the Bible says that? I, I don't know where they get their information. I don't know if they've been listening to uh, televangelists. Uh, they're misusing scripture all over the place. I don't know what religious connotations they've been engaged in. I don't know where they're getting their information. I don't know if it's from parents that they had fights with that told them stuff was in the Bible. Okay, did you know that Rob Peter and Pay Paul is not in the Bible? It's not. Okay, and, I, and so we have these axes. So Jesus Christ just takes a Samaritan woman right past that, and, she's, and he teaches her biblical truth. God is a spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. And then he's going to introduce her to um, the moral condition that she's in and her need for a savior. And she is amazed at the revelation. And, and you might think, well, shouldn't she be defensive? Well, not at that point because he's already taken away her axe. She has no axe to grind. There's no religious argumentation going on anymore. And he's just revealed that he knows my sin. And she's going to run and get the, the village folk and say, come out here and meet this guy who told me everything I did. Oh, somebody finally told you to your face all the, <laughs> all the stuff we've been talking about and, about you. Someone told you to her face about your sin. Yeah, come here and meet him. He knows everything. Um, but what was the message? The message was God's a spirit. He went right by her antagonism by saying that's not really something to fight about in God's word. So I'll go, I, I can get past that you haven't figured out Genesis, which is the flood and creation. I can get past that. I can, I, and I've done that multiple times with people. Well, let's just 
okay, all right, you don't, how about this? You know, why do you wear clothes? I ask young people that all the time. Why do you wear clothes? Where does that come from? If you think you're just an animal, why do you wear clothes? It's not just for warmth. It's not just to protect you from the elements. Why do you wear clothes? Now, if they're really committed to their way, they'll just strip off in front of you, and then it'll be kind of embarrassing. I've never had that happen, by the way. But the reality is, is that there's something different about man than animals. And people in their hearts know that. I don't have to deal with all the created order. I just have to deal with man, because that's who I'm dealing with as a man, a human. Do you really think you're just a descendant of an of a amoeba? Slime. Are you just well-developed slime? Really? Then why do you wear clothes? Why do we have these institutions? And so we go to God's Word. Well, God's Word says you're something much more than that. But again, God's Word says. The Bible says that? Yeah, let me show you. Here. Rip it out of your Bible. Give it to them. Yeah, you're creating the image of God. It says so right here. Now we've just redefined things. So when we, we, won't want, we don't have to f- get in the argument. Jesus Christ gives us a great pictorial of that. And we see that in other places too in the New Testament. We go through the book of Acts and we see that I will engage the religious. The religious people I will engage in. Right? Jesus engages them. I mean, he just nails them with scripture after scripture. But we're talking about people who are questioning the scripture. Okay? And so when Paul engages the demoniac, when he engages the sorcerer, when he engages, how does he do that? That are essentially antagonistic to truth. Well, we don't fight it on their level. We bring it right out to, here's the truth. And where we can't see it. And what does the sorcerer say? How'd you do that? Can I have some of that power? Okay? And so when we, and remember, sometimes it's not the person you're talking to, it's the person listening to the person you talking to the person you're talking to. You need to communicate biblical truth to them. At that beginning point, instead of at that point of contention, bring it to the point of agreement. And that's, I think, where we need to start with God's word and I think Jesus Christ gives us that illustration there. Uh, if I'm talking to religious people who, have, who acknowledge and affirm the scriptures, maybe because they were, and they'll make a say, well, I'm, I was raised a Christian. And I'm like, well, no one is raised a Christian. You can't raise Christians. Right? You knew that, right? You can't raise a Christian. Um, you, 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 they have to decide for themselves. Your parents can't make that choice for you. And so I try to use God's word. And I, with young people, um, I don't have as much contact with young people because my, my children are not teens anymore. Um, and so they're not in sports. Not, I don't have that contact as much. But when I did, I would just say, well, and I had one young man come up to me on the track and say, what do you think about this? Okay, and it was a religious question. 
that was not being handled very well in the family. And the family was Jehovah's Witness. And he wanted to know if that was true. And so I entered, I said, well, my opinion really doesn't matter. I said, but here's what God's word says. And I said, you should read the Bible if you want to find truth. You go through the Bible. And shame on me, I didn't have a copy of the Bible that day to give him. But I mean, that's out on a track. Because he was having contention at some point, and he wanted a third view. And one that supersedes that contention. And God's word will do that so many times. That people are really fighting over things, that God's word supersedes it. And you need to let them know that. You know, this is, this is the, the way we inter- start to introduce truth. Next week, we're going to talk about how then we're going to use the truth that we've introduced to lead them to Christ. And we are going to look at the Romans Road and other passages and refresh our memories, hopefully, of what does it take to be saved out of the Scriptures? Where do I take them? How do I present it to them? But we're just really talking tonight about establishing God's Word as truth that we can use then with them later. They don't have to agree with everything there. And they might still have their axe to grind five years after they accepted Christ as their Savior. And I'll address it then. If they want me to. All right. Some of you have axes to grind that you might never resolve. No matter how well I teach God's word. There are parts of scripture that I have a problem resolving. So we're all at that point where we have our pet areas of our life that we don't want to conform to Scripture. And, and so don't start there and say, well, you have to, I mean, but if you give me God's Word, even in these smaller areas, then I have an opportunity now to say, oh, this is not about us versus you. This is about truth, and we all break on the truth. This is absolute, whether it's me, you, whether it's the, the disobedient Christian or the somewhat moral unbeliever. They all break on the truth. And when they see that happen in front of them, oh, to open up the opportunity now to introduce the rest of Scripture. So we need to be getting to the Bible quickly, um, and as much as, as quickly as can be allowed, and getting it into people's hearts, into their minds, so that by either the ear gate, the eye gate, the life gate, whatever it is, we need to get them, in, get them into God's word, uh, rather than arguing their axes that they're grinding against it, to realize there's a, probably a lot in there that they are for it. Last quote. A guy named, by a title called Gandhi, said this about Christianity. If all Christians lived the way Jesus taught, I would probably be a Christian. What did that expose to you to? Yeah, but what does it expose you about Gandhi's reasoning? Yeah. If he knew what Jesus taught and rejected it, he's as guilty. 
because he's using that argument won't stand before God because that's truth and you're saying that I won't follow the truth because you won't follow the truth and the world thinks he's wise okay and that's that's foolishness to say I'm not going to follow the truth because you don't follow the truth uh, I think I got over that in junior high. Well, so-and-so did it, so I didn't. No. doesn't work. Okay? Um, the principles are there, but our lives are something we need to look at. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for our time, your word tonight, our time. And we thank you for the example of Christ with the Samaritan woman. And Lord, we, we pray that we might be ready to introduce your word in every conversation to uh, not just negative or argumentative ones but affirmative ones that we might uh, uh, share your truth as people uh, happen upon it or or uh, it still has some uh, effect still in their life from somewhere in their history and lord we uh, or even in their moral place that we might use God's word, introduce it there in a positive fashion. Lord, help us to have wisdom to do that, and Lord, that we might be sure to introduce God's word, knowing that it will not return empty. You're by your promise. And again, we pray for your wisdom and guidance in all of this, in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. So next week, we'll finish this part up. I thought I'd do it tonight, but I didn't get to it.